Well, last week uh, I, I mentioned that uh, that I'm running with Abby for a marathon. Abby's training for Abby's my wife. She's training for a marathon, and uh, she'll be in Chicago in the fall. And I'm really, really proud of her, and she's working really incredibly hard uh, at it. Uh, but she's she's training for for a marathon, and, and I want to support her. So the best way I can think to do that is just to run with her. So uh, like yesterday, we went out for a long run, and, and so we've been running together. And that seems like a totally normal thing to do to me. It seemed like a great way to support her until I tell people. I tell people that, hey, my wife's running, running a marathon, and I'm running with her. And then they always ask this question. In fact, John Parker was the first one to ask this question when I said, hey, Abby's running a marathon, and I'm running with her. And she's like, oh, so you're running a marathon. I said, no, 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 you didn't hear me right. Abby's running a marathon. And he said, yeah, but you said you're training for a marathon. You're running with her. I was like, yeah, but she's the one running a marathon. So he says, he says, uh, so you're training for a marathon, but you're not running a marathon. And I was like, yeah, exactly. And then everybody responds basically the same way with a sound and then one word. Uh, his, his was this, huh, smart. Uh, and I'm not sure if he was being <laughs> sarcastic or not, but I'm pretty sure he was being, he was being sarcastic. Um, it is kind of a crazy thing, though, this running thing. And, and when you run long distances, you kind of have time for your mind starts to wander. And yesterday, I was kind of thinking about it. I was like, this running is kind of crazy. I mean, uh, Henry Ford would be very disappointed in people because he put the power of 100 horses into a machine to move us along. Yet I'm running on these two spindly hurt legs uh, just going nowhere. And so, uh, so Abby's training for a marathon. And um, uh, one of the mornings when we were out, training, uh, she said something that, that I thought was really profound. She said this, she said, uh, no matter how much you train, no matter what the distance you're going out to run is, the first step is so hard because the finish line always feels so far away when you start. I thought that was a really, like a, a really profound statement. I thought it was a good analogy for life. Whenever you start out to accomplish something, no matter how much you've trained or prepared or worked for it, when you take that first step, the finish line always feels pretty far away. Today we're looking at the, the law of God, his measure of rightness and goodness, what it looks like. And I think it can feel like that. It can feel like the measure of God's goodness can feel so far away when we start out. It's, it's like that first step is so hard because the, the finish line seems so far away. And we're going to look at the, the law of God in the context of, like I said, this uh, Sermon on the Mount series. The Sermon on the Mount, for context that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, we've, we've called it the inaugural address of, of the king, where, where Jesus is laying out what participation in the kingdom looks like. What he's doing in this sermon is he's, is he's describing what the heavenly things he's bringing to earth, what those actually look like lived out. And so starting here where we are today, uh, chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, and then really for the next two chapters, uh, Jesus basically is teaching us about that way. And if we look at it honestly, if we look at what Jesus says, it can be kind of overwhelming. And it can feel like the finish line is impossibly far away for what Jesus is telling us. So let me set the stage and the, and the context for where we are, and then we're going to read the scripture together, and then we'll try to unpack it. So here's where we are. Jesus has just begun the, the Sermon on the Mount. He's just a, a, a couple minutes into his teaching, and he's, and he's just said this. He's looked at those people on the hillside that gathered to hear him, and he said, You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine before people so that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He gives them words to aspire to. And then he turns the volume up. And in verse 17, he says this. It's in your bulletin. You can follow along. If you've got a Bible, you can follow along. Bible app, whatever. Or you can just listen. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus said. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. 
For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, by any means will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches them accordingly, he's probably referring to the commands he's about to to give. Anyone who sets aside these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, your rightness compared to God's standard, your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. If you read the Gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and if, uh, if you've been following along in the Gospel reading plan, we've been doing that. This is uh, what we're calling a year in the life of Jesus here at Summit, and so we've been reading the Gospels together. And if you, if you haven't done that and, and don't know what I'm talking about, out in the lobby there's a thing you can pick up. It's a Gospel reading plan. Just jump in with us and read the Gospels with us. But if you've been following along or if you've read the Gospels before, you, you see that Jesus gets himself in trouble a lot. He seems like he's always in trouble, and a lot of that trouble centers around the belief that Jesus was putting himself and his teaching above and against the written word of God. He practices things that don't line up with those that that followed the word of God in his day, and a lot of the gospel are confrontations with Jesus and, and those people around the things of the law of God. They ask him things like, why do you eat with people that are unclean? Why do you eat with bad people? You're not supposed to eat with things that are unclean or people that are unclean. They ask him things like, the Sabbath is supposed to be a holy day where you're not supposed to work. You're supposed to rest, but you heal people on the Sabbath. What's up with that? And there are all these conversations that center around his interpretation of the law. And the issue really wasn't that he was failing to keep the law in practice. Actually, what was at issue is that Jesus was trying to abolish the law as the bedrock truth that people were supposed to live by, that he was creating this new thing. The Greek word for uh, abolish, uh, kata or kataleo, it's a strong word. It means to dismantle or destroy something. Imagine an old piece of architecture that's no good for anything anymore. You, you tear it down so that you can build something that's useful. It has that sense of the word. So that was the claim, that Jesus was tearing down the bedrock truth of God's word to build something completely new. But Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So what does he mean by that? Well, I think to understand what he means by that, we're going to have to try to answer three questions together. Uh, if you like three-point sermons, congratulations, uh, you got one. Uh, but but, but here's, here's the three questions that I think we're going to try to answer together. What is the law? What's the point in trying to live God's standard? And what is the way to that standard? What is the law? What's the point? And what is the way? All right, first, if I ask you what the law was, you might think about the laws that govern society. Speed limits, rules about stealing from people, things like that. But if I ask you what is the law of God, you might rightly think the Ten Commandments. That's the law of God. God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt, and on Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with his people. He makes an agreement with them. He says, I'll be your God, I will be with you, and you, in return, will reflect my character in the world. The Ten Commandments are the terms of that agreement. Don't worship anything or anyone other than God. Rest, honor your parents, don't murder each other, don't lie, don't want other people's things, so on. Things like this. Good rules for living. And there's a sense in which these rules, these Ten Commandments, were a way of reminding people that had been slaves for 400 years what it means to live free. So in that way, the Ten Commandments were a gift. 
But there's more to the law than the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are contained in the law of God, but there's more to it than that. There are actually 613 commands in the first five books of the Old Testament, which is referred to as the Torah or the written law. Some are about what makes God's people distinct from the world around them. Some are about social justice. Some are about morality. 248 of the laws are things that you should do. 365 of the laws are things you should not do. So hooray, one for every day of the year. One thing you shouldn't do for every day of the year. This year is the year in the life of Jesus. Next year, a year of don'ts. Uh, so we can, <laughs> we can really just get through it. But, um, but these commands, they all added up. We're about people displaying the character of God and pointing people back home. That's what God was after. He says, I want to give you these ways of living free so that you can display my character so that people will be so attracted that they'll want to come back home to me. That's what God was after. But 613 is a lot of commands to work through. So you may wonder, uh, I don't know if I can get my arms around that whole kind of standard of God. Is there, is there like a summary or a Cliff's Notes version of the law of God? Actually, Yes, there, is, there actually is a Cliff's Notes version of the law of God. Jesus, at one point, was asked, what's the most important command of all the 613, of all the laws of God? What, what's, what's the most important? And Jesus says, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. That explains why he lived the way he lived. That explains what motivates his actions. So what is the law? The law is more than a set of rules. It's a story. It's a story about how God is creating a people who can freely love him and fully love others. So that's the law. Love God with all you've got and love people. Simple and good. And there are a couple ways we can respond to the law of God. We can respond to God's standard for us. We can say, you know what, I want to live by that. I want to accept that as truth, and I want to try to live that way. That's one way to respond to God's standard. But another way is you can say, you know what, no thanks. I, I, I don't want that. I don't want that standard. I want to lose that, live that way. I'm going to choose uh, to be my own truth, or I'm going to choose a different truth. Those are really the two ways you can respond to God's standard, his, his law. So say you start with, I want to try to live the law. I want to try to live the law of God. I want to seek to love God and love people. We might begin with the thought that like, that's pretty easy. Loving others is a, is a pretty easy thing to do. But in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll talk about this over the next couple of weeks together, what Jesus is doing is he's showing how difficult that can actually be. He says things like, the law says don't murder because it's not loving the person that you're murdering. It's like, yeah, of course, we get that. Like, that makes sense. But then Jesus turns that up. He says, he says actually, uh, don't even disrespect people or nurse resentment against them because you're not following God's law or his ideal because you're not loving them in those moments either. The bar is that high. When Jesus says things like that, he's giving us a picture of how life should be. We shouldn't nurse resentment against each other. We shouldn't disrespect other people. But, but he's also, and this is really crucial, he's showing us how our hearts aren't really equipped to abide by God's law because the finish line seems so far away from where we are. We're not really equipped to love God and love people. See, the problem isn't with the law, it's, it's with us. 
When we try to live God's standard, there seem to be these gaps that show up. So you might say, okay, I'm going to try and live God's law. I, I want to love him and, 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 and love others, so I'm going to seek kindness with that difficult coworker. I'm going to be really intentional about that. I'm going to really go after that. And maybe you make some strides there. Even though they're difficult, you start to find ways to be kind to them, but it takes so much energy in your life. When you get home, when you walk through the door, you're just gassed. And so you use your wife and, and, or your husband and, and your kids as your emotional punching bag. And you realize, wait, I'm not any closer to kindness than I was when I started. Maybe you work with integrity in your work, and, that, and that's hard because the people around you don't. They're, they're not people of integrity in the same way that you are, but you seek integrity. Uh, but that takes a ton of work. And so to unwind from all of that in your personal life, you, you seek escape in substances or, or websites because that's your own personal time. And you realize all that hard work of you looking good on the outside is actually corroding you on the inside in your private life. Maybe you're really good at loving those that are closest to you, and you sacrifice for them, and, and with, that's in line with God's standard, and that's a good thing. But then you realize you, you tend to care for those closest to you, but you don't can, tend to care for or about those that are outside of your group. That's a psychological phenomenon, by, by the way, called minimum group, minimal group identification where you think favorably about those closest to you, those with your same beliefs and your same likes and your same dislikes and your same social structure, but you tend to distance yourself from those that aren't like you. If, if, that's, if that's you, if you feel that way, join the club. That's like a human condition. We all tend to do that. So maybe you say, I'll fight that. I'll fight that minimal group identification thing, and I'll do something like nicer. I will intentionally try to go out and serve others, or, or I'll find someone in need that's not like me, and I'll really try to, to pour into and meet their needs, and that's a really good thing. That's in line with God's standards, but over time, what tends to happen is we start to say, man, I'm putting all this work in, and no one's noticing. I mean, I deserve a little recognition for all this hard work, Right? And you start to realize that the goal of serving others and loving others gets replaced by loving recognition and wanting that. And maybe you get better in one place, you realize you've got so far to go in another, and the finish line still seems so far away. It's like opening a closet in your house, and you see that it's on fire, so you, you grab a fire extinguisher, and you put it out, and then you turn around, and you realize the rest of the house is on fire as well. So as we turn to the righteousness of God, the more we see the gap between it in us. So the question is, when you walk in this morning, like, where do you feel that gap? Where do you feel a gap between you and where you're living and, and the goodness of God? Where you're living and how you're supposed to be? No matter how much you've tried, no matter how much we train for these things, the first step, looking at God's standard of goodness, of love, shows us how far we have to go, how impossibly far we have to go. So we might, in response to this, say, okay, like I've looked at that and I just have so far to go. The gap is too big. So you know what? I'm going to take the bar away altogether. There's no problem here. I just want freedom to live the way I want to live. Don't tread on me. Don't bother me. I won't bother you. I don't need your rules and standards. I don't want anybody else's rules and standards. I'll make my own standards. I'll be my own absolute truth. That's a way that we could respond to the gap. But the question I have, if, if we choose that, if we feel that way, maybe we walked in this morning saying, saying that, like, yeah, Jesus is all right with me, but the thing is, I just want to live the way I want to live. Questions like, do you like sports? Do you, do you want your kids' teachers to have proficiency evaluations? Do you want the police 
to come to your house if you call them up and say a crime has been committed? Do you, do, you, uh, do you want performance reviews to know how you're doing at work? Do you want to know what it takes to get the next raise or the next promotion? If you said no to all of those, you're a robot, and this sermon is not for you. But if you're like the rest of us, you're a human, and we say we want freedom, but we actually like rules and boundaries. We like rules and boundaries. We like sports because we know there's a winner and a loser and because they don't ask that much from us. We like stock tickers because they tell us if we're up or down. You might say, on the one hand, I just want my freedom. I just want to live the way I want in one breath. But in the very next breath, we very likely will say, I'm doing pretty well compared to that guy. We like to know how we're doing. We just don't like to be told we're not doing well. I've talked about this before, even recently, uh, that I loved baseball when I was a kid. Uh, in Indiana, that's what you did. You played baseball until you uh, developed a good form in your jump shot in basketball, and then you just changed over to basketball. It's kind of like everybody's trajectory in Indiana. So Little League Baseball was huge. It was a big deal, and I played for the Cubs. Every year, I played for the Cubs because uh, a guy who lived down the road from me, and basically no one lived down the road from me. There were only like six people on my road, and so uh, it was nice to have someone down the road from me. But uh, Kyle Johnson lived down the road from me. He was the catcher on the baseball team, and his dad, Fred was the coach of the Cubs, and I think out of pity, they always drafted me, uh, and so I always played for the Cubs, and, and he would give me a ride and things like that. In this one season, uh, we played really well, and I started to think, you know what, I'm doing pretty well. They moved me from left field where you never get a ball hit to you, where you just play with dandelions, but they moved me to shortstop where you get the ball hit to you all the time, so that means I must be doing pretty well, and uh, the pinnacle of Little League Baseball in Indiana was uh, the all-star team. You wanted to make the all-star. If you could make the all-star team, you were like local famous, uh, whatever age you were, and so this year I was convinced that I was going to make the all-star team. I never made it before, but I was convinced I was going to. I was so convinced uh, that I went around to every pretty girl in school, and I was like, hey, they're announcing all-stars tonight. If you can make it to the field, you're probably going to hear my name. Uh, <laughs> You know where this is going. Uh, I'm not proud of it, but uh, I wanted to be honest. And so, uh, so they start announcing the names. And the way they do it is after the last game of the season, they would announce the names and everybody would come out on the field. And I should have known then that it was like, hey, no one told me that I was going to be announced. No one asked me to be there. But I was still convinced, like, my name is going to be called. And so they started calling names, and they started lining the teams up. And pretty soon I started to do the math. And I was like, wait, I hadn't considered at any point that I wasn't going to make that all-star team. And I didn't. And I was devastated. I started to, to blame it on politics. I was like, well, I know why I didn't make it, because, because Kyle's dad's the coach, and they're the ones that vote on it. That's why Kyle made it, and I didn't make it. And before you feel sorry for me, uh, that's not true. I was just really bad. I was just really bad at baseball. I should have known this when, uh, when I would be up at bat, uh, and, and I thought I was you know, going to go Sammy Sosa on somebody and you know, hit a home run. But I would hear the coach. This is every, every pitch, like, hey, wait for, your, wait for your pitch. And then if I'd let the pitch go by, I'd hear claps. Like, yeah, good job. Just let it go by. Just hopefully you get four balls and you can walk to first base, and then maybe we'll get you around. Uh, and when I'd swing, any time I would swing, the coach would be like, uh, wait for your pitch. And so it was like I was always just supposed to wait. And he was like, yeah, I think if I'd asked him, he'd be like, yeah, just don't swing at anything because uh, you won't hit it. Uh, but anyway, so, um, right? Like, I, 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 I thought I was doing so well until, until, I, until I was compared to somebody. I wanted to be compared to everybody else until I was told I wasn't doing well. We like to know how we're doing. We just don't like to be told that we're not doing well. And when it comes to God's standard, we aren't doing that well. 
And this isn't a bar is too high thing. The problem isn't don't lie. The problem isn't the standard of sexual integrity. The problem isn't the, the call to love your enemies being too rigid. Like that's not the problem because no matter where we set the bar, the reality is, if we're honest, we'll fall short of that. It's what Paul talks about. One translation of, of Romans 7, Paul wrote a bunch of the New Testament. Uh, and, and Romans 7, one translation says this. So the trouble is not with the law. It's spiritual, and it's good. The trouble's with me. I don't really understand myself. I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And I don't think Paul is alone. So the law, loving God and loving people, is good. But there's this gap, this distance between us and the law that seems like we can never make it to the finish line. So if that's the law, if it's good, but there's this gap between us and the law, what's the point? Like, what's the point in trying to live God's standard if it seems impossible? Well, the point is, when we're thinking most clearly, that's the life that we want. If I asked you, what type of life do you want? Like, what, in your day-to-day, like, what do you want to experience in, in your life? There's not one person in here that would say, like, basically what I'm looking for is, like, to be isolated most of the time, where people put me down, where I'm, I'm constantly in fear uh, for my safety and uh, constantly struggling just to be noticed. And so I push, put, push other people to the side just so other people will affirm that I'm worth something. That's really the kind of life that I'm looking for, aren't you? And we'd all be like, no, of course not. That's a terrible life. If I said, what type of life do you want? It would be something like this. It would be a life where where you can wake up early, energized, even without coffee, and where you can head off and and, and look at your family and those closest to you in the eye and say, I love you. I need you to know that. And they can know that they're cared for, and, and in return, I can know that I'm cared for because they say those things in kind to me, and I know that they mean it and they display it in their actions. And I head off on my day focused on a goal of adding value wherever I'm asked to, and I can help others be at their best because I'm not too concerned about whether or not I know I'm valued because I know that I'm valued. So there's no need to be insecure or yell over other people. And I can walk through my day, and I, and I can care for people I come in contact with, and I can speak only words that build up, and only words that build up are spoken to me. Because everyone is is busy caring for everyone else, I can know that I'm loved, and that I can pursue what God's made me for. And at the end of my day or my end of my work week, I have margin to, to rest, to actually rest and dream about what God's fashioned my heart for and how he's made me to join him in his good work in the world. That's why we try. Because that's the type of life that we want, and that's the type of life that we're made for. But the problem is we quickly realize something that, if you're like me, is really hard to admit. We can't get there on our own. And honestly, if we try, we don't even get to the energized without coffee part of the day. This is what we want. So what's missing? Like, why can't we get there? If this is the type of life that we want, like, we don't want a life where we're hurting people all the time or people are hurting us all the time. We want a life where we're, where we're caring for people and loving people, but we don't get there. Like, what's missing? Why can't we get there on our own? Why can't we just get better? Well, at the end of, of Torah, back to the law, back to the Old Testament, Moses, uh, the one who God chose to lead his people from slavery in Egypt, he gives this speech at the end of Deuteronomy. He says, I know you're not going to follow God's law. And he says, because there's a problem. 
The problem is your hearts aren't in it. The way he says it is your, your hearts are hard and you need new hearts. And after the first five books of the Bible, the law, the Torah, the rest of the Old Testament is essentially proving Moses right. They go into the promised land and, 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 and with the freedom he's given and the law that he's given, which is good, which is what the people wanted, and they repeatedly break the law. But God doesn't give up on his people, but the law does go unfollowed. And then the prophets come along. Remember, Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And the prophets say things like this. Ezekiel says, the problem is if Israel is ever going to be obey, being able to obey God's law, his spirit's going to have to transform their hearts. He's going to have to change them so that they can trust God and trust him enough to love people because of how they're loved by God. And Isaiah comes along and, and says, this, a promised uh, future leader, somebody is going to have to lead this, this new people with these new heart. Like somebody's going to have to guide them along, and, and, and a new leader will come, and he will obey the law fully. His heart will be fully in it, and he will allow others. He will move people toward fulfilling that law. People in Jesus' day used the term law and prophets to refer to the whole Bible. That was kind of that was shorthand for like the whole Bible. And the Bible tells the story of God wanting to rescue every single person and bless everyone through people that have transformed hearts. Jesus saw himself as accomplishing that story. See, coming to fulfill the law isn't the natural way that you would say that. When he says, I've come to fulfill the law, you might say, I've come to obey the law, I've come to do the law, I've come to keep the law. These would all be really natural ways to say that. But fulfill the law, that's not a natural way of saying it. But it's the same sense that Jesus uses in chapter 26 when he's arrested before his crucifixion. He says, I've come to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus agreed with the law and the prophets that said the human heart, that's where the worst parts of humans will come from. That's where, that's where the worst of us will come from. But he said he came to solve that problem. What's missing is him. When we were preparing for this series, we got a, a group of people together and we just read the Sermon on the Mount. It was really fascinating to read it in one setting. I encourage you to do that and do it with some people uh, that you care about and that you trust. Uh, and, and then at the end of it, uh, Zach actually asked a, a really cool question. He said, what do you feel? In one word, describe what you, what you feel. What's one word to describe how you feel having read the Sermon on the Mount? One person answered, I feel empowered. And another person sitting next to that person said, I feel somber. I feel sad. How can one teaching of Jesus make people feel both those things? Well, I think it depends on how you read Jesus' statement in verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the, and the Pharisees believe that God's favor came from keeping the law and the commands. They were people who were meticulous about keeping those laws, and when there wasn't enough explanation of that, they actually wrote commentaries to say, hey, here's how you actually live this law out in our own context. And they're often presented as the bad guys in the scriptures, and rightfully so, but, but to the people that heard Jesus say that, they wouldn't have thought that. It wouldn't have been the thought. They wouldn't have thought of hypocrites or anything like that. What they would have thought of were the spiritual giants of their time. Essentially, what they would have heard is Jesus say, think of the most godly person you know. If your rightness, your goodness compared to them, compared to God's standard, isn't more than them, isn't better than them, isn't bigger than them, if you're not better than them, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And so when we look at that, we go, how could that possibly be? We might say, all right, fine. I can't do that. If I think about the most godly person I know and then I'm supposed to have a better life, more reflective of God's character than that, I can't do that. If you say that, you're in a good place. Because Jesus didn't come to say the law is bad. He didn't come to lower the bar. Instead, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets because this is how life should be. He came to show us how much better it would be if we lived the law God had given. And we can't. So he fulfilled it for us. See, we don't have to go through life afraid that our good works won't be enough. They won't add up to God approving. Like at the end of our days that we'll show up and, and stand before God and say, here's my good works. Is this enough to get it? They won't. We don't have to live afraid that they won't. They won't. But that's why Jesus showed up. See, our good works can't save us. Only the grace of Jesus can do that. So what is the law? Loving God with all we've got and loving people. What's the point of trying to live the law? Because it's the life that we want, even if we can't get there on our own. So what is the way? Grace. See, we want to live by the law, but what we need to live is grace. Matthew, the gospel writer, more than any of the other three gospel writers, seems really interested in connections between Moses and Jesus. Another name for the Torah, the written law, which, again, is the first five books of the Old Testament, are the books of Moses. So you get the books of Moses to begin the Old Testament, and five times in Matthew, he uses this phrase, when Jesus had finished saying these things, when Jesus had finished saying these things, you see that five times in Matthew, it creates five sections of the book of Matthew to correspond with the five books of Moses. But the connections that Matthew makes are deeper than just structural. It was Moses who led the people from slavery through the wilderness into the promised land where God made this agreement with him, this covenant, that he'd be their God and they would live his character. And when Matthew has shown us is that Jesus comes out of Egypt where his family fled Herod after he was born. He came through the wilderness and the temptation there and he's now coming to the promised land. With this sermon, he's giving a new covenant of grace. See, Jesus doesn't lower the bar, but he shows us that his love will take us further than that law ever will. Back to Romans, Paul says, But now, apart from the law, righteousness of God has been made known, which the law and the prophets have always pointed to. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all can be justified by his grace. That's how Jesus solved the problem. Jesus wasn't talking about beating the scribes and the Pharisees at their own game. They have 613 commands, come up with some new laws, outlaw the most lawful. Jesus said, I'm bringing the story to fulfillment. The story of God creating a people who can fully love God and fully love others. He's bringing that story to fulfillment. He fully embodied loving God and loving others. We see it so clearly in, in how Jesus lived. I think maybe the quintessential moment we could look at is, is where at one point Jesus is teaching in the temple and a crowd's gathered around him and, uh, and, and, and the Pharisees uh, and the teachers of the law, the very people that he referred to as the most righteous, uh, they, they bring this woman up in front of Jesus who had been caught in adultery, which is an incredibly shameful thing to do, and they, and they lay her kind of right in front of him. And they say, look, she, she's, she's morally corrupt. 
She's been caught in adultery. She's broken the law. She's far from God's best. She's not right. She deserves death. What should we do? That's what the Pharisees asked Jesus. And there's a, another really reference to whether Jesus is trying to abolish the law or not, right? Like that's what's at the heart of this thing. And for this woman, there was no way out. She's laid right in front of Jesus. She's been caught. She knows she's broken the law. And Jesus responds, all right. I love that. He's like, all right. But let the one who has never sinned cast the first stone to put her to death. And one by one, they go away because they know they, they haven't lived perfectly God's standard either until there's no accuser left. And then Jesus asked the woman uh, to, to kind of raise her, I assume, raise her eyes and kind of look around. And is there anybody left to condemn you? And, and she says, no. And he says, then I don't condemn you either. And then he says these words. He says, go and sin no more. Go trusting God because he loves you. See, the thing is, we don't get a sense that this woman was trying to plead her case. She knew she had broken the law. It was clear to everyone. So by law, she couldn't live. But by grace, she was not just forgiven, but she lived. See, Jesus fulfilled the law with his compassion, his mercy, even loving people to his own death. When Jesus says not the least stroke of the pen will disappear until the law Uh, from the law until everything is accomplished. It calls forward to him proclaiming on the cross his last words where he was giving everything. It is accomplished now. The law sees fulfillment in his life and his death. But the law also sees fulfillment in his resurrection. After he's raised from the dead, he, he, he goes out looking for his disciples and he says this. He says, he says, God's gonna send a spirit and his spirit is going to, it's a new wind. It's going to be a fresh movement of God, and it's going to change your hearts so that the law and the prophets can be fulfilled in you as well. Jesus says, the law and the prophets can be fulfilled in my followers as well. See, standards, law, they can't change our hearts. Law can't move us to love, but love can change our hearts, and that's what Jesus does for us. I mean, think about it. Love, we know, takes us further than law ever will. And empowered by his spirit, we can actually live that out in our marriages. Law says, don't cheat. But love says, how can I outserve you? In parenting, the law says, you know, provide for your kids' basic needs. But love says, how can I help my kids, my children, discover God's best for them? In the workplace, the law, the ethics of the workplace might say, do good work, be on time. But love says, how can I build others up? How can I avoid gossip even if others are thriving on it? How can I intentionally create space for others to improve? In our community, the law says, don't do evil. But the love says, do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can in all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can for as long as you can. And if we lived this way, if we lived this way of grace, empowered by God's love, it wouldn't just change us. It would change our communities as well. It would change our people, the people around us as well. It's because when there was no way, when our hearts weren't in it, he became the way so that our hearts could be changed. So don't give up. Get close to Jesus. He's the one who will take you all the way 
all the way into the places that we have been created for. When we weren't salt and light in the world, when we don't follow God's law, when the finish line seems impossibly far away, he says, I'll love you all the way. And you may say, I've tried and I've failed and I'm so far away from where I should be. But when we say there's no way, he says, I'll be the way. See, we want to live by law, but what we need to live is grace. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that truth? The law is good, and, and, and it's the life that we want, but there's this gap. But Jesus came to fulfill the law to, to, to create grace for us so that we might be able to live the law. What do we do? Well, the first step for some of us here is recognizing that things aren't all right. It's recognizing that there is a gap between you and who you want to be. And maybe it's in recognizing that for the very first time or recognizing that again, that you're opened up to what Jesus has done for you. C.S. Lewis once said, knowledge of the broken law precedes all other religious experience. See, the acknowledgement that we're not all right is met by the grace of Jesus that says it may seem impossible to live the law that is good, but he offers what we need to live. He says, I'll give you grace and you're loved that much. Maybe that's the first step for you. Maybe that's what comes next for you. For others of us here, if we look at God's standards, if we look at what the Bible calls righteousness, God's standard, and compare that to where we start today, the finish line, it seems so far away. Us being who we're supposed to be, who we want to be, might seem impossibly far away, but remember, the first step isn't toward the law. It isn't toward some changed behavior. The first step is toward Jesus. And when we feel like we can't make it, we can know he made it for us. Jesus gave everything to fulfill the law for our sake so that our hearts could have the freedom to dream about pursuing the kingdom because the love of Jesus will take us further than the law ever will. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the challenge of holding in tension that the law is good and it does point people to you and it is what you want for us and from us yet we can't live it fully without your grace. Father God, thank you that you give your love, which will take us further than, than trying to seek to accomplish a law ever possibly can. Thank you that you call us children. And you invite us as children to trust you. And to know that we are loved by you so that we can pursue what is best for us, not fearful, that you'll turn your back on us. Thank you for your grace, and thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.